Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. I came here last week slightly excited because I was going to make it through two verses, but if you notice when we left, I completed one verse and you had a blank on your bulletin still. (laughs) I don't know if I was disappointed or not. It seems to be my MO though. So this week we get to follow up on last week's message, moving from verse 22 to verse 23. And that's not necessarily a bad thing for the way this structure goes. And so I do want to continue kind of our theme of foundations for a thriving society and specifically now look again at a laborer's work, this time part two. I do ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Once again, as I've been doing, I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Verse 22, bondservants, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You may be seated. At his shop in Paris, Maurice Durand made his living selling antique scientific instruments. It was his heritage because the shop had been passed down from his father and from his grandfather before that. Though there are worse ways to spend a day, Durand did not consider this really a particular exciting way to earn a living. It is written that there were times when Durand felt a bit like the trinkets lining his little display window, polished and reasonably attractive, but ultimately good for little more than gathering dust. Study after study, research studies, whether Christian or secular, has each shown that there's a relationship between human contentment and the value of their work. Matt Perman, a Christian author who specializes and writes on productivity, stipulates that humanity flourishes when they see the value of their work. After conducting multiple studies with other researchers and by himself, Jerry Porras concluded that for most people, the real definition of success is a life and work that brings personal fulfillment and lasting relationship and makes a difference in the world in which they live. Secular psychologist Abraham Maslow is known for his hierarchy of human needs. This is a list that ranked human needs and what a human needs during their lifetime, from the most important to the least important. What is little reported, though, is that later in his life, Maslow revised his own hierarchy 
at the top of his list had been self-actualization. That is, that he saw at the very top of human needs was a need for a person to fulfill his own desires, his own goals, and his own potential. But in his later years, Maslow removed this self-actualization and removed it from the top and instead replaced it with self-transcendence, meaning that he took something that was about people fulfilling their own goals and instead at the very top of his list, he placed the concept of living for a purpose greater than oneself, that is living for others as the greatest of human needs. Essentially, this movement that he was saying people are more satisfied in their work when they live for others than for themselves. For Maurice Durand and his little shop in Paris, Maurice had failed to connect the value of his work with the impact on the people he served. For those who find themselves unfulfilled in their work, I wouldn't recommend following, following Maurice Demand's model or consider him the best example. Because in order to find his purpose and meaning, he became an art thief. But followers of Christ, I would urge them to find the value of their work in Christ. In Paul's writings to slaves, we see these principles of, of work. Remembering that last week we discussed that indeed it was slavery that was the model for their economy and the model for their work. Today that looks differently. And next week we'll address why Paul did or did not directly condemn slavery. Because by now I think we know that it's contrary to God's character. But the point being that that was the model for work and today we have our model. And so we see these principles of work from that. Last week, we looked upon the model of work from verse 22. Today, I want to establish for you the meaning of work from verse 23. We just said that people value work when it is connected to a purpose. And so I would tell you that the Christian will value work and be content in his or her work when he realizes that all work is done for the Lord. It is in this passage that we see that our work is dignified because it is sanctified. The work we do is made holy. And because it is made holy, it has purpose and it has value. And so I want to draw out for you three aspects or three ways in which work is sanctified from this text. I want you to note first that work is sanctified when we work for the Lord. I'm working backwards from our text, beginning at the end of verse 23. In that last part of verse 23, it, it calls on slaves to work for the Lord and not for men, it says. According to this text, work done well is work that is done for the Lord. And this verse reorients any laborer from working for ourselves or working for others. And it's dead orients them to seeing that the value of work is defined by making God a part of that work. This principle is really the result of how Paul started this passage in chapter 3. It's a result of his mindset established in verses 1 and 2. Remember there that Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. If you've been raised with Christ, the inclination is to seek those things that are above, to pursue Christ and to pursue him in all other things. We now see the activity of this premise applied to the outcome of a laborer's work in these verses. Thus we see that one who is raised with Christ in verse 1 of chapter 3 will seek after Christ in verse 2 and ultimately will serve Christ here in verses 22 and 23. If the believer's mind is focused on our Lord, the believer's work will be for the Lord. This text is crucial. It's crucial to making work a holy task by bringing it under the influence of a holy God. Even the slaves that Paul writes to directly here, they would have found this verse very radical and progressive. Their lives were defined by their masters, their position in the culture, their participation in society, and even their purpose and work were all determined by their master, by their owner. But now Paul is saying that while you were called to obey your earthly master, as we saw, your work comes from your devotion to your heavenly master. And so this verse says, do not work for men. There are some disturbing consequences when the Lord is not the focus of our work. First, the text warns against working for men. We've already seen this warning expressed in the previous verse, in the idea of not working for eye service or not working as people pleasers only. The danger of focusing on people in our work is that those people become our God. More concerned about their approval, we will subject ourselves to their conditions rather than the Lord's commands. The issues at hand is, though the Lord calls his followers to obey their earthly masters, what happens when there's a conflict between what their earthly master is asking them to do and with what the Lord requires? They're ultimately going to compromise if they're following men. And so the focus on people makes these people, the workers of, the workers, excuse me, God over the one true God. Let me rephrase that. When we focus on people in our work, those people become our God. That's the first danger. Not directly mentioned here, though, is what happens when we focus too much on the circumstances. The surrounding verses, though, and, and other texts in Scripture tell us what happens when we do focus on circumstances, because we see that that's actually happening. Elsewhere, slaves are warned against laziness and theft. In the book of Philemon, we learn the story of Onesimus. If you haven't noticed by looking at our text, but even if you look at Colossians 4.9, we know that Onesimus is actually present here as Paul has written in, in this letter is being read. And so while Paul writes about slaves, or writes to slaves, this runaway slave Onesimus is actually present. We know the story of Onesimus. So focused on his circumstances, he chose to run away. This is a serious crime against Philemon, his owner and master. 
But I would also tell you it's a serious crime against God. Again, for all the moral wrongs of slavery, I would still tell you this is a serious crime against God. How so, you might ask? That's a fairly appalling statement and, and really a bold accusation, especially when you consider some of the harshness and horrendous conditions that were faced by slaves. They indeed were part of a cruel and unjust system. And now I have the audacity to accuse the slaves of being criminals against God. But see, the one focused on circumstances sees work as a burden and a hardship and refuses to acknowledge both God's purpose in work and in the circumstances of their current work. The person focused on the circumstances is basically saying to the Lord, this isn't right. I shouldn't be here. And maybe it is unjust. But we can't say, Lord, you have it wrong, and I know better than you. What they've done is made themselves Lord instead of living under Christ. Isn't that what Onesimus has proven by running away? He's saying, Lord, I know better than you. I am removing myself from these circumstances that you may have intended for my good. And so when we focus on the circumstances of the work, we make ourselves God. The last disturbing consequences of not placing the Lord at the center of work is then we focus too much on work itself. In this case, the work itself becomes our God. And at that point, we will use anything work-related to supplant anything that is God-oriented. And so when we make men our focus, they become our God. When our work circumstances become our focus, we become God. And when our work itself is a focus, it becomes God. But there is a God who is over all work. By keeping the Lord the central focus, it sanctifies our work by transforming our purpose. Instead of being our offering or being an offering ourselves, work becomes an offering for our Savior. This is a tremendous concept in which the Lord Jesus Christ has offered himself for us by the work assigned for him by the Father. And now we offer ourselves for him by the work assigned to us by our Father. In this way, our work, whatever it may be, then becomes a kingdom service for him. And ultimately, it becomes a fulfillment of Romans 12.1, which says what? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. This is your spiritual act of worship. Notice a verse that follows Romans 12.1, Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and what is perfect and acceptable. Do you see the connections there between, once again, one's mind and doing the will of God. That's the same principle we've just developed in Colossians, beginning in verse 1, that your mind is oriented to him, and that results in doing the will of God in the later verses. Colossians 3.23 transformed the view of work in a very spectacular way. Notice the comparison. Work is something done for the Lord, not for people. Our typical mindset is to work for ourselves or to work for other people. 
Rarely does someone consider the work they do as for the Lord. But working for the Lord changes both the outcome of work and the origin of work. Work, for the, work done for the Lord is purposed by the Lord. Meaning that whatever work we do, no matter how mundane, no matter how magnificent in a secular view, work is divine. It is an endeavor purposed by the Lord for the will of the Lord. It becomes part of his divinely orchestrated plan for the world to function. That also indicates that if the Lord has purposes, has purposed it, then he has a purpose in it. And work becomes a means for the Lord to cultivate godly character and lead people towards him. No doubt the slaves that Paul writes to face a variety of circumstances. Depending on their master, some slaves were treated very poorly and very harshly. Some, though, became very close to their masters, becoming not just master-slave, but actually becoming friends. In the present-day workforce, we see the same in which the conditions are really determined by the master, by the leader, by the, the head of the company or whoever it may be. Regardless of the circumstances and the conditions of work, the Lord has purposed those conditions, though. Whether good or bad, they are meant to bring about good, not bad. But they do so for the Lord's good intentions. And so we trust the divine outcome of work because we trust the divine origin of work. All work is sanctified because it finds its purposes in him, which is to sanctify people. When we see all work is to be done for the Lord, because the Lord has purposed it, then it brings about contentment in our work. There's no need to complain. No need to be anxious. There's no need to dread our work because we trust our Lord is working in our work. Work is sanctified because the Lord is using it to sanctify us. I want you to note second, that work is sanctified when we work from the heart. Our text reads, work heartily. Some of your versions may say work wholeheartedly, as it does in the previous verse. All the way back in the 6th century BC, Israel was told by God through the prophet Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The Lord makes this promise because we learn that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? asked Jeremiah. He goes on and says the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. This heart is so horrendously frightful And so frightened by his own heart, King David actually cries out to the Lord in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David seems to understand something about the human heart, something that's revealed by Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Jeremiah not only states that the heart is deceitful above all things, but he actually goes further. And in that same text, he says, It is beyond cure. It is incurable and unchangeable. 
The only solution then is for the Lord, our great physician, to not just heal the heart, but to become a surgeon and actually transplant the heart, to remove the old sick heart and to replace it with a new one. So that by the time we arrive to the New Testament and, and talk about the Gentiles, we begin to understand that this is the work of Christ. And what does the oft-quoted 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. The new heart brings about a new creation. And now we arrive to our text in Colossians 3, in which the Apostle Paul calls upon believers to exercise that new heart, to put it to work for the Lord. Again, last week in verse 22, we looked upon the call to work wholeheartedly, to use the heart totally and completely for the work the Lord has given us. And now in verse 23, the heart is used specifically for the Lord. The best use of the heart is to employ it for the one who gave us that new heart. And then the significance of this text is actually far more revealing when we realize the meaning of the word when it is written work heartily, or as some versions say, do it from the heart. The word for heart in verse 23 is different than the word for heart in verse 22. The word in this phrase, do it from the heart, is actually the Greek word that we always translate soul, signifying that when a believer works, they don't work from their whole heart alone, but they work from their entire being. The author of Ecclesiastes writes that whatever you find, your hand finds to do, do it with your might. When I was praying about going into ministry full-time, I remember sitting in a tea shop in London having a cup of tea. That's not important, other than that you know I actually drink things other than coffee. Over these cups of tea, though, I shared with a man whom I respect and, and have great admiration for, somebody who I actually consistently seek advice from. And I shared about these convictions that I was praying through, and he shared with me one piece of counsel. If there is anything else you can be content doing, do that. And then he adds this statement, because the Lord doesn't need any more half-hearted people in ministry. His point was that there are already too many in ministry not performing the full function of their call or to the full glory of the Lord. He wasn't wrong, and it's the same advice I still give to people today. But see, the Lord's call is not only for those in ministry to work with all their might. Here, his call is for all who work to do the same and to do so from the new heart that he has given them. And the Lord has given his all for us. And so he calls for us to give our all for him. Notice what happens here. Believers are called to utilize who they are as a new creation, as, as ones created by the Lord to now work for the Lord. Because, because work is from the Lord and for the Lord, Work becomes this sacred duty. Again, it's a holy task, sanctified by the Lord. 
The work we do is more than duty to others. It's more than an obligation to provide for our family. And it's more than a chore that's just part of living our daily lives. Work becomes a commission from the Lord and a means by which we honor him and glorify him and participate in his will. Even more, work is not only done for the Lord, but it can only be done well if it's done from the heart. And so if the Lord is the one who has given us the heart, that also means he is the enabler of our work. Not only does he call us to work for him, but we can only work because of him. And so we work not only on behalf of the Lord, we work because of him. The labor and effort that we put out is simply an outcome of his work in us. I I hope you see that connection, that the work we do is a result of the work that Christ did. Because of the work the Lord has done by giving us a new heart, now indeed we can work wholeheartedly. A combination of these two points, this working for the Lord and, and working from the heart, they elevate the standard of work. We would expect one who works half-heartedly to work in a mediocre manner. But by enabling his people to work wholeheartedly, the Lord enables them to work with excellence. Repeatedly, we have established that all we do is done for the glory of the Lord. This truth extends to our work that it be done in order to magnify the Lord. If the Lord's work in us enables us to work for him, Our work becomes a means to reflect the Lord. And so what happens is that our work is done with excellence to reflect the excellent nature of his character. This is what it means to work from the heart for God. I want you to note finally, the work is sanctified when we work for the Lord in everything We tend to confine our work for the Lord to distinctly Christian activities. Sunday worship, a Bible study, even a church dinner all constitute work for the Lord. And they compel us to work harder because it is for him. But then we even distinguish between tasks of the same nature. For example, when we clean the church or we do yard work at the church, those are for the Lord. But do the same thing elsewhere whether at home, whether at work, or any other area. And for some reason, we don't consider those as being done for the Lord. But look at the text. It's a verse that says, whatever you do, as in everything, do it for the Lord. There is no work, no job, no task accepted from this verse. Even what we would classify as the most menial and most low-status jobs, are to be done for the Lord. There is nothing beneath our dignity when we work for the Lord because there is dignity in working for the Lord. Reason for this is found in our scripture reading from last week, specifically in verses 9 and 10 of Titus chapter 2. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. 
Notice the relationship between submitting and working well and the testimony it then produces. It states specifically that it adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior. The call to work well is rooted in this idea that the way we work is a means to proclaim him and testify to the goodness of God. This not only sanctifies work, but it adds dignity to all tasks. What we do is made honorable because we do it for the Lord. No matter how awful that work, it is elevated in excellence because it is for him. Many years ago, Bethany and I were attending a Bible institute, and I was assigned a job that I had to show up for in the afternoons. Every student was assigned a job. And at first, I was assigned to the stage to help put together everything that they needed for all of their productions. These were big and elaborate performances. Their productions were a big deal. And so this job was very notable. This was a preferential place to work because it came with prestige. Eventually, though, for reasons that don't matter here, I asked to be transferred. And so I was transferred to a department that was called Majadormia. In English, that translates stewardship. But the job was not as glamorous as that title may sound. The work for stewardship consisted of things like cleaning and vacuuming and dusting and anything related to that. Actually, the word stewardship, I think, was a very appropriate name for that department because that's what they were doing. By engaging in those tasks, they were stewarding what God had given them. But I literally went from constructing the stage to cleaning the stage. And yet, from this verse, there is dignity in both because both are to be done for the Lord. It actually goes further, though. As a summer camp went away and the school year began, part of our tasks migrated to the men's dorms. And on a weekly basis, the bathrooms were cleaned in these dorms. And the floors in those bathrooms are removable. Why would you have removable floors in a bathroom? To clean. That's the obvious answer. But you know what was below those floors in those bathrooms? Pipes. Fairly large ones that went from here to there and there to here. Do you know what those pipes connected to? The toilet and the septic system. By now, I think you may be getting the image here. Our job was to clean those pipes, to rinse them out. It's hard to see that work as dignified and honorable. But even according to this verse, that is a task to be done on behalf of the Lord. This is the perspective the Lord is calling us to have. That all work is valuable because it is work we do for him. Why do we have such a hard time remembering that perspective? I think because we have failed to properly identify ourselves with the Lord. God is our Father, Jesus is our best friend, Holy Spirit is our helper. Each of those is a true statement. And each of those is important for our relationship with God. But sometimes those statements don't go far enough in reminding us of another aspect of our relationship with Christ. We're also slaves to Christ. 
Every follower of Christ is identified as a slave of Christ. In a few verses, in, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, Tychicus is identified as a fellow slave. And a few verses after that, Epaphras, who seems to be the founder of the Colossian church, is also identified as a slave of Christ. Paul describes himself as a slave of Christ in Romans chapter 1. Peter identifies himself as Christ's slave in his second epistle. And even James, the half-brother of Christ, never identifies himself as a brother of Christ. He identifies himself as a slave of Christ. Each of these men is distinguished, not just by their relationship and proximity to Christ, but they were notable for their labor for Christ. And what it seems is that each of them labored furiously, intentionally and intensely, with integrity, because they saw themselves as slaves of Christ. When we see ourselves as slaves of Christ, we see our, see our work not as an exaltation of what we can do, but as an exaltation of what Christ has already done. It was William Tyndale who said, if we look externally, there is difference between washing dishes and preaching the word of God. But as touching to please God, there is no difference at all. That's a biblical view of work, that there's no difference when done to, honor, to the honor of the Lord between preaching and washing the dishes. We tend to think of work as a curse, something instituted at the fall. But work existed before the curse, and work will exist after Christ's return. It simply became more difficult after Adam's fall, after his sin. But from the beginning, the Lord gave human life purpose by assigning every human a duty. Our Lord sanctioned work. And from the beginning, work was instituted as a means to please God, to enjoy Christ, and to glorify our Lord. But not only did the Lord sanction it, he sanctified it. Our God made work a holy task. It is a holy task because it is a means to serve a holy God. It is holy because it is a means to proclaim his holy name. And it is holy because it is a means to cultivate holiness in his people. This morning we look upon our text and we see exactly how work is sanctified. It is sanctified when we work for the Lord. It is sanctified when we work from the heart. And it is sanctified when we do both of those in everything. If you remove any of these pieces, work loses its value and purpose. As an example, if you work for the Lord but not in everything... Work loses its purpose. If we work from the heart in everything, but not work for the Lord, work loses its value. If the studies are correct that people are more content with their work when their work has some sort of significance, when what they do is connected to some greater purpose, how do we make work purposeful? We don't have to. The Lord already has. I have no doubt that our Lord in creating all humans placed in man's heart the desire to add value to humanity and at the same time placed in them the innate response to feel content 
when they had contributed to providing for their family, for their friends, for others. But the Lord didn't just create people with a desire to have a purpose and then leave it there. He then gave them a purpose by purposing their work. This is the meaning of work, and it is magnificent. Last week, we saw the model of work, that we work obediently, that we work confidently, and that we work reverently. This morning, we have the meaning of work. We go from the model of work to the meaning of work, and and work is sanctified because it accomplishes the Lord's purposes. There are times in my life frequently where I feel useless, asking myself the value of what I am doing. This week gave me plenty of opportunities to question that. But none of them caused me to feel more useless than when I'm called upon to teach children. I, it's just not what I do well. But that's how my week began. By teaching a group of 5 to 12-year-olds. I'm not great with children. And I'm thankful that there are so many that are. Teaching them is a struggle, and I felt bad for the poor children I had to teach. (laughs) Before me was this great guy who works well. After me, another guy, both of them exciting and animated and involved with those kids. For me, I'm sure it was quite uninteresting and boring. (laughs) I have been dreading that moment for several months, and my whole goal for this week was to get through that moment. (laughs) And by God's grace, I did. Early Tuesday morning, it was over and I could rejoice. (laughs) And then Friday came along. And I showed up at a church here in town to join up with a group that we're part of. And everybody's given a task. And I walked up to get my task from a friend. And the lady said, I I saved something special for you. (laughs) One of our teachers isn't here. So you get to teach the adolescents. To make it more humorous, it was a survival class. (laughs) I have no doubt that many of you here are more qualified to teach a survival class than I am. Not wanting to make light of the crucifixion, all I could think was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? (laughs) I have no problem confessing those struggles, but... Here's the thing, and here's what keeps me going. Especially when I was preaching on this very topic this week. This was what was at the center of it all. I may not be great working with youth, but that was the work that was assigned to me by the Lord this week. That was how God saw fit that I serve him in that particular moment. And therefore, Colossians 3.23 became very relevant. Whatever you do, work heartily, As for the Lord and not for men. I may have felt useless and I may go through those emotions from time to time. But those emotions are reined in by the fact that the Lord has purposed work in our lives for his glory. That's true for the work for all of us. Even those of you who are retired and say, well, I don't have a career anymore. And yet I do know that you're still working. It doesn't matter because the verse says whatever you work. It is for the Lord. And then we come to this realization, and I wish I had more time to develop this. But when work is done for the Lord, it becomes worship to the Lord. 
Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for, for who you are and what you do. Father, you have given us purpose in life by assigning us work for you, Lord. Father, may we take on those tasks with great joy and great contentment, knowing that it is our means to serve you, and by serving you, we're also serving others. Lord, may we see work as a means in which we can proclaim you by our testimony and work and working well. And so may we approach each day not as a burden, but as a blessing that you allow us this privilege to serve you in this way, Lord. And so, Father, we look upon this text grateful that you are speaking to us, teaching us the value of work today and the purpose you have for us. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.